Good evening. I'm happy to see that you uh, skipped out on the football game and came to church. But I do understand that the Broncos are leading and driving, which I'm very happy about anyway. There was a handout at the door, which we should have had the very first Sunday night, and I goofed on that and didn't have it ready for you, but now you have it. Um, And then secondly, I want to remind you about my website. If you need more information, more notes, just homerheater.com and uh, go find what you want there. If you don't want it, don't take it. Uh, They're also putting these uh, lectures on YouTube. So if you want to go to YouTube and review, um, if you have the courage to listen to it twice, uh, just go into youtube.com and then type in my name and you'll find the the, uh, videos there for that. There are six dates that are very important for the understanding of Jeremiah. Now, I gave you a whole bunch in the handout, but there are six that I want you to really be thinking about. The first one is 640 B.C. What happened in 640? Josiah became king. How old was he? Eight. And then he began to do reforms and so on. Then in 627, what happened? Jeremiah became a prophet. God called him as a young man to the prophetic ministry. And then in 609, what happened? Josiah was killed. What else? The Assyrians were defeated at Haran, even though the Egyptians went to help them, and Josiah tried to stop the Egyptians, and he was killed in the process. Number three, they put Jehoahaz on the throne in 609. How long did he reign? Three months. And then Pharaoh Necho came back from Haran, and on his way south, he stopped at Jerusalem and said, I'll decide who's going to be the king. And he took Jehoahaz into captivity in Egypt and put his brother on the throne, whose name is Jehoiakim. And he ruled how long? Eleven years. All of that happened in 609. So you can see that that was a very traumatic year. 605, what happened? Number one, the Assyrians were utterly defeated at Carchemish. And we don't hear of them again in history. They don't disappear, but as an ethnic, political power, they disappear. 605 is also important because Nebuchadnezzar, who at that time was the general, his father Nabopolassar was the king, heard that his father had died, and he rushed back to Babylon to take the crown and become the king of Babylon. He also apparently sent messengers to Jerusalem and said, I want you to send your mortgage money not to Egypt, not to Assyria, but to Babylon from now on. And he took uh, into captivity at that time Daniel, the young man, and the three men with him. And in 605, Jehoiakim said to King Nebuchadnezzar, I will submit to your authority. I will obey you. I'll send my mortgage money to you every month, and I will not rebel against you. He takes an oath to do that. King Nebuchadnezzar said, fine. He went back home. Then we come to 597. What happened in 597? He broke his promise and proceeded to rebel against Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was probably fighting off in the east somewhere, and that made the people in the west think they could get away with it, like mice playing with the cat. 
And when Nebuchadnezzar got his act together, he came back to Jerusalem, and the people said, uh-oh, we made a big mistake here. And so what they did was apparently, the Bible doesn't say this, but apparently they killed Jehoiakim. We say that because he died, and he was young, so he didn't die of old age. And in an effort to say to King Nebuchadnezzar, we're sorry, it wasn't our fault, it was his fault, and we killed him for you. And they put his son on the throne, whose name was Jehoiachin. And how long did he reign? Three months. So we have three months, 11 years, three months. And when Nebuchadnezzar said, all right, I'll listen to you this time, and I'll let you off the hook this time, but you try this again, and you have had it. And so he took young King Jehoiachin and his mother and a bunch of the royal officials and so on, some 3,000 people, into captivity at that time. And he put another son of Josiah on the throne, whose name was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah rules how long? 11 years. Three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah also took an oath. I will always obey you. But he was fairly young, and he was a vacillating king. And he was under the control of some of the elders, older men in the uh, city, uh, some of the military officers and so on, and they decided the time was ripe again to disobey King Nebuchadnezzar. There's a marvelous uh, chapter where King Zedekiah and a bunch of the ambassadors from Tyre and Sidon and Moab and so on are all gathered around the big executive table plotting revolt. And Jeremiah comes in to the room, and I can imagine that Zedekiah says, oh, no, here comes Jerry again. And he had yokes on his neck, a bunch of wooden yokes. And he took each yoke off and put it on the neck of the ambassadors that were there and said, this is the yoke of Babylon that you must submit to. But they didn't. They were foolish enough to revolt against this powerful force called Babylon that God had already told them that he was using in a divine way to discipline his people. And this was going to happen no matter what they did. But they still revolted. So Nebuchadnezzar came back, and date number six is 586. What happened in 586? In 588, the army came and encircled the city, put it under siege, and began to starve them into submission. Eighteen months later, they broke through the walls of the northern part of the city and began to pour in. And when this happened, King Zedekiah and his advisors sneaked out through the south wall, headed for the Arabah down near Jericho. And the armies of Babylon overtook him, captured him, took him up north to Riblah, where King Nebuchadnezzar was seated on his throne. And the last sight that he saw was his boys being killed in front of him. Then they poked his eyes out, put him in iron fetters, and took him to Babylon. And that ends that first temple period because they tore the temple down, they tore the city down, and so on. Tonight we're in chapter 7. <clears throat> and in these early chapters, up to about 20, there are no dates given. So we have to kind of guess that. But we have a thing here which I'm calling the vanity of religion. Most people call it the temple sermon because it was preached at the temple. And there's a parallel chapter to it in chapter 26 where Jehoiakim is the king. 
So this probably took place in Jehoiakim's reign. This chapter doesn't talk about the political implications of this, but chapter 26 does. After he had finished his sermon in chapter 26, the people and the priest and the prophets all got together and said, this man must die because he's speaking against our city. And the princes, the royal family groups, spared Jeremiah. But another prophet who had spoken against King Joachim fled to Egypt and they chased him down, brought him back and murdered him. So it wasn't easy being a prophet in those days. As I said earlier, I don't want to be a prophet. They had to put up with a lot of stuff. And they almost never had anyone at the door saying, Preacher, that was a good sermon. <laughs> Every time they came to the door, they said, That's the worst sermon I've ever heard. I hope you don't ever preach that again. I hope they put you in jail. How would you like to put up with that every Sunday? I guess you did one time. <laughs> so tonight I want us to turn to chapter 7 and talk about this very important message that Jeremiah preaches at the entrance of the temple. When you go to Jerusalem today and you go south of the Temple Mount, which today is occupied by the Dome of the Rock um, and also by a mosque at the south end of the Temple Mount, and then the central part is this beautiful golden-covered dome, which is more of a, um, more of a, what do I want to say, more of a temple than it is a mosque. And it commemorates what they say was Muhammad's ascent to heaven on the back of his horse. And so Jerusalem is, in the Muslim world, the third most holy city, with Mecca and Medina being the first two, and then Jerusalem being the third most holy city. And that whole area today is, of course, controlled by the um, Muslim authorities, and Jews are allowed to come on the mount, but only one at a time. And so there's some more conservative Jews are determined to get up there, and they need ten of them to have a prayer group, a minion they call it, and so every time they try it, there's a big riot and a big fight and so on. But when you go south of that Temple Mount, uh, they have excavated that whole area. They're not allowed to excavate around the Temple Mount, of course, and under the Temple Mount. But they have excavated uh, south of the Temple Mount. And there they've uncovered these long steps that would go from here to here, a whole series of steps going up to the Temple. And so when the people came to the Temple to worship, to offer animal sacrifice or whatever they were doing, they would go up those steps, and along the way you find what they call mikvahs or baths, where they could stop and dip their whole body under the water and come out again, and then they'd be clean to go into the temple. So they had this very ritualistic approach to come into the temple. And as they're coming up those steps, Jeremiah is somewhere standing in there preaching a sermon. Back in the 60s, there was a group of people called the Children of God. Anybody remember those? They used to come into a church like this one. They'd fill up the whole back row. And just as the preacher get ready to start, they'd all stand up and say, repent, <laughs> and then file out of the church. I'm not sure what they thought they were going to gain by all that, but <clears throat> interesting situation. And I'm sure that these people thought about Jeremiah the same way the churches thought about those children of God as they came in and disrupted the service back in the 60s. This is what he's doing. He is preaching an extremely unpopular message. And the people don't 
want to hear it. And they are prepared to go as far as necessary to stop that sermon from being preached. So look at chapter 7 and verse 1. In verse 1, we have the participants, 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah when he said, Stand in the court of the house of the Lord and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter at these gates to worship the Lord. All right, let's pretend this is on Sunday morning. And Jeremiah is standing out by the front doors and we're all coming in to worship. And he says to us as we come in, I've got a word for you, I've got a message for you. They all, we all stop to listen to him. What does he have to say? And so that brings us to the first thing. In verses 1 through 7, we have the misplaced confidence. The misplaced confidence. Pastor Bill was talking about this this morning. Uh, he was sort of reading my mail this morning when he was preaching. And I like the one about the alcohol on the lips. Because that is a misplaced confidence. We are putting confidence in something for our well-being that we shouldn't. It doesn't work. And these people were putting their confidence in the temple itself. The temple is here. It's our religious symbol. It's everything that we believe in. And as long as this temple is here, we are okay. So listen to what he says. Verse 3, he gives them a warning. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. When you hear that long introduction, Yahweh said, Ba'oz, Elohei Yisrael, when you hear all of that, you know you better sit up and listen. He's about to say something very significant, very powerful. He says to them, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. When we talk about how people believed in the Old Testament, it's a little bit difficult. We understand New Testament. You put your faith in Christ, and you receive Him as your Savior, and you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, which is the church. <clears throat> we understand that. And so when we talk about believing, we accept that. In the Old Testament, we're not sure how to deal with that, because it wasn't the same. Uh, they still had to have faith in God. But what did that faith consist of? And when a Jewish child was born into a Jewish family, he was automatically in the covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And when he was a little boy was circumcised at day eight, that was a symbol that he was coming under the covenant of Abraham that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and all the children of Israel. So from then on, they're considered believers. But now their actions have to demonstrate that they're really believers. Or they're not. Now we have to be careful here because it sounds like good works. That he's saying to them, if you'll change your ways. When I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia, that was a favorite expression. You better change your ways, buddy. And if someone died, they would say, the preacher couldn't preach him into heaven. He was so bad. And the whole idea was that if you lived a good enough life, if you're a nice person, 
if you're honest, if you didn't cheat, didn't lie, faithful to your wife, and so on, you go to heaven. Oh, you had to join the church. That was important, too. You, my father said to me one time, uh, I don't think he was a believer. He said to me, you know, they took my name off of that church roll. I said, well, Dad, how long had it been since you'd been to church there? He said, mm, about 25 years. <laughs> but being on that church roll was his confidence. If I'm on the church roll, I'm a member of the church, then I'll go to heaven. Oh, it's so easy to slide into this works thing, even for us who are believers and should know better. When I was president of our school, I used to make the final interview of any employee being hired. And I didn't try to find out how competent they were. I left that to their supervisors. But I want to know where they were spiritually. And I would get so many people. I would say, tell me how you came to know the Lord. And they said, well, uh, I joined the church when I was 12. And I worked hard to keep the Ten Commandments. I said, wait a minute. How do we get to heaven? Oh, well, you have to believe in Christ. But that's not what you told me. We slide back into this, I've got to do good works, or I can't get to heaven. And that's one of the hardest things to convince people of, because uh, all of your mainline denominations pretty much teach that. If you talk to a Roman Catholic, uh, and I, have, I went to a Catholic school and spent a lot of time with young Catholic priests, and they will all talk about, yes, you've got to have faith in Christ, but... You've got to really hang in there or you've lost it, you see. And so the bottom line is that in, in the Catholic Church, in spite of their theoretical theology, the practical theology says you have to work your way into heaven. And this is true of a lot, a lot of church groups. It's true of modern Judaism, too, insofar as they believe in heaven. It's by good works that you wind up making it. I was on campus one day and walking past the dining room and I saw an irate woman had a couple of our students cornered and uh, they said, uh, Dr. Heat will be glad to talk to you. <laughs> so I took her to my office. She was a Jewish lady and she was furious. She said, my roommate went to a meeting last night and she came back home and said that she had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and she was going to heaven. And I walked by this place, and I saw Washington Bible College and Capital Bible Seminary, and I said, you people, you don't know what you're talking about, and I'm in here to talk to you. And she said, I've even had rumors that this Adolf Eichmann, who had been arrested and deported back to Israel and eventually was executed for all of his nefarious deeds during World War II to the Jewish people, I've even heard that he had accepted Jesus. You're going to tell me he goes to heaven and all the Jewish people don't? Ah. It's a good question, isn't it? But you see, this, this idea of salvation by faith through grace, for by grace are you saved through faith in this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That is a terribly difficult thing for the human race to accept because innately we believe that we have to earn whatever we get. So this is their problem. They are professing faith in God. They don't know about Christ yet, but they're professing faith in God. And now they're coming to the temple 
to worship. They're coming to church on Sunday to set things up. He says to them, let me tell you something, folks. If you will change your ways and start obeying God and doing what his word teaches you to do, then I will let you live in the land of Judah and in the city of Jerusalem. The warning implies, if you don't, So that's his warning. The third thing is found in verse 4. This is the important one here. Do not trust in these lying words, these false, deceitful words, saying three times, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. What are they saying? They're saying, as long as this temple stands here, do you see this beautiful temple? with Boaz and Joachim pillars in front of it and all the wonderful altars and the holy place and the holy of holies with the priest sacrificing and all the ritual that goes on, as long as it's a standing here, God will never punish us. That, folks, is a misplaced confidence. And I would dare say that there are a lot of people attending church who have a misplaced confidence. Pastor Bill was talking about that this morning. A number of years ago, I had a couple apply to our seminary from Louisiana. They were living in Northern Virginia. Both were veterinarians. And since I was visiting Northern Virginia, I decided just to touch base with them and get to know them. And so I talked with them a little bit and I asked about their testimony. He says, I want you to know something. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Louisiana. I was in the nursery from day one. I joined RAs. I taught a Sunday school class. I sang in the choir. I did all of these things. I was baptized, of course, the great symbol of salvation. And if I've been baptized, I'm okay. I had all of that, he said. But one day I realized... I did not know the Lord. So he said, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and so did my wife. I said, I have a question for you. I said, okay. He said, are you sure you're saved? (laughs) But you see, I can spend my life in church, and because I think we baptize our children so young, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying we baptize them so young, they have this little symbol And then they can depart and go their own way and leave the church and everything else. But they can still say, I was baptized. In some way, ipso facto, that makes them a child of God. And they're going to heaven. No matter what they're doing. No matter what they're doing. No matter how they're living. They're going to say, I'm okay. When I worked in Georgia a long time ago as a young fellow, I remember stopping for gas one place. And I said to the guy, do you know the Lord? I've been baptized, he said. I've been baptized. That was his confidence. I've been baptized. Ritual does not save. Only faith in Jesus Christ saves. And what a difference it is when you really know the Lord versus being religious. But they're putting their confidence in this temple. And they're convinced that God would never touch Jerusalem as long as that temple is there. Now, let me take you forward a little bit, about 700 years. 
Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives. And as you're coming down that steep mountain, you're looking up and you're seeing the temple sticking his head up above the wall. He goes up to that temple and he says to the disciples, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I grieved over you? And how often have I wanted, like a chick gathers her, her, a hen gathers her chick under their wings, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you would not. Henceforth, your house, the temple, is left to you desolate. Desolate means destroyed. And the disciples are aghast. They're looking at this beautiful temple, far more beautiful than the original Solomonic temple that Herod had built. And they're saying, how can you be talking about the destruction of the city, of this temple? And Jesus says to them, I want you to understand that the time is coming when there will not be left one stone upon another in this place. This temple will be torn down. And here we are seven centuries later, the disciples still saying the same things the people were saying in Isaiah or Jeremiah 7. They're saying this temple is God's marvelous symbol of his presence among us and nothing can harm us as long as it is there. And you know what happened? 70 AD, they revolted in 66. The Roman army besieged the city. It took them three years, but they finally broke through, totally tore down the temple, totally destroyed the city, drove out the Jews, and put an end to everything the Jews found precious to them at that time. From that time to this, the Jewish community has been without a temple, without a sacrifice. And so they have to turn to the prayers and to Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. And they come in and confess their sins. That's the best they can do. And for the general liberal Jewish person, that's okay. But to the Orthodox Jews, not to have the temple is a terrible, terrible loss. And God wants them to know that it's not the stuff that you can touch that counts. It's the relationship with God through faith in Christ that counts. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, because she said to him, you say you're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. We say you worship here on Mount Gerizim. Jesus said the time is coming when you will worship God neither in this place nor in Jerusalem, but you will worship him in spirit and in truth, for God is spirit. And that's the way we have to worship him. So that's where we are, the false confidence. Now, this is treasonous language. This is why they want to kill him. He's saying to them, this temple that you love so much is going to be torn down. In verses 5 through 7, we have the promise. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, these are the things that a godly Jew in the Old Testament was supposed to do. If you do not oppress the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, the three major vulnerable groups in the Old Testament, or do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, idolatry, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. You have an option, he says. You can choose to stop using this temple as an excuse for your disobedience. And you can start obeying me and doing what I ask you to do, and you can stay in this place. If you don't do that, I will remove you from this place and take you into captivity. 
All right. This is the misplaced confidence. Number two, we have the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy. Listen to this. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. When you say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That won't do you any good. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely by my name, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? What does this sound like? The Ten Commandments. Listen to them. You have number eight, six, seven, nine, one of the Ten Commandments listed here. They're breaking the covenant relationship with God by their vile activities. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 3. You that say, you shall not commit adultery, you commit adultery, he says to the Jewish community in chapter 3 of Romans. So what are they doing? They go out and they steal. Quite often they didn't think they were stealing, they were just charging little extra income tax to the neighbor. They're murdering people. Killing people. They're committing adultery. They swear by the name of the Lord. I swear by the name of Yahweh that I'm telling you the truth when they're lying the whole time. They swear falsely. They burn incense to Baal. Idolatry. And they walk after other gods whom you do not know. And then you come And stand in this place and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Now, I don't think they actually said that. I can't imagine that a a worshiper would come into the temple and say, God, I thank you that you've delivered me from all my sins so I can go do some more of them. But Jeremiah says, in effect, this is what you're saying by what you're doing. You're saying that if I come into this temple and offer an animal sacrifice... I can then walk out and do anything that I want to do. Lie, cheat, steal, commit fornication, commit adultery, worship other gods. I can do any of these things that I want to do because this temple has protected me. You know, it's interesting living in the South. I've spent most of my life in Washington, D.C. area. And then I've spent about 14, 15 years in Texas. I lived in Georgia when I was a teenager, and now I'm in Kentucky. And everybody I talk to is a Christian, except for the Pakistani doctors that live over where, in Waitsboro. Everybody's a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. What do you think I am, a pagan? It's, it's, a, it's a culture that in many ways we like because there tends to be a common conservative approach to things, more or less. But at the same time, it's a thing that lulls us into sleep because we think, because we've gone through some ritual, we've gone forward at a church service, we've become identified through baptism some way that we're okay for the rest of our lives and we can go to heaven. And like that dear young man from Louisiana, spend his life doing religious stuff but never really knowing the Lord. I doubt that that's true of any of you in here. But it's always possible. And it's important that you examine yourself to see 
whether you're in the faith. Do you really, really know the Lord? Because we all have our rituals. We have our rituals here. If our pastor didn't give an invitation every Sunday, he'd hear about it. I, I remember taking my sister and her, and her family to a church in Alabama one time where I was trying to get them out of their dull, dumb church into one that would teach them the Word of God. And my sister on the way home said, they didn't give an invitation. What if someone wanted to accept the Lord? I said, well, they could do it. You can accept the Lord any place, anytime, anywhere. You don't have to come forward at a church service for that to happen. But we have this ritual that, that we think we have to do or things aren't right. Or that we have to meet in a building like this. This is the church. No, it's not the church. This is a building. It's a nice building. But we're the church. If we met in the parking lot, that would be the church. If we met at my house, that would be the church. We mustn't lean on ritual. It will not save us. And if we cling to it too tightly, it could even do the opposite and lead us into a dullness of spirit that makes us think we're believers when we're not really believers. You able to say amen to that tonight? Don't get mad at me now. Okay. There's a way you can stay in this city, says Paul, says Jeremiah. You can stay in Jerusalem. You can keep your businesses. You can keep your homes. You can keep your families. You'll still be under Babylonian control, but you can stay here. You mess around and try to play games with me and live lives of debauchery and come into this temple and act religious. He said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Verse 10 of verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Does that sound familiar to you? Remember when Jesus went into the temple and he became so angry when he saw these people acting like bankers instead of like priests? They were selling stuff. If you came from another country, you had to go in and exchange your money for their money. As if you went to Great Britain, you have to change your money into pounds and so on. You had to change into the temple money. And when they changed into the temple money, like a lot of countries, they added a whole bunch of stuff on top of it. So you got 80 cents on the dollar or whatever when you traded your money in. They were changing money. They were buying and selling animals. If you want to offer a sacrifice, you've got to have a lamb, Right. We have some for you right over here. There's a nice one without any blemish. We'll sell that to you for $25. So they were really in the money business. And Jesus gets so upset, he picks up a whip and starts driving them out of the temple and says, have you made my father's house a den of thieves? And Jeremiah says the same thing here, 700 years earlier, that they've done this. But he says in verse 12, I want to give you an example. The example of Shiloh. Shiloh was a small town in the hill country. And when the children of Israel came out of the desert and crossed the Jordan under Joshua, came into the land of Gilgal, they moved on in. Eventually, Shiloh became the priestly center for the nation. It's where little Samuel was taken by his mother and left there with Eli, the high priest. The tabernacle was there, not the temple. They had the big tent that they used for their worship services. 
And the high priest was a fellow by the name of Eli. I like the description of him. He was a big, fat guy. And he was pretty well blind. I think he probably had cataracts. He didn't have Dr. Huffman around to straighten him out on that. And when he got the bad news of what had happened, he fell off the bench and broke his neck. That's, that's when it says he was heavy, and he fell off the bench and broke his neck. Eli was a good man, but he was a weak man. And he had boys who were following him in the priesthood who were wicked. They would wait at the gate of the temple or the tabernacle, and they would say, we want nothing but the best meat. Don't give us this other stuff. They said, but the law says do it. I don't care what the law says. I want my meat now. It even says they lay with women at the tabernacle, uh, possibly because of ritual, religious ritual, the Canaanites. I don't know for sure. But they were an immoral bunch of men. And Hannah takes her little boy, who's probably four years old, and leaves him with that bunch. Can you imagine? Because she had said to the Lord, if you'll give me a boy, I'll give him to you. And that means I'll give him into your service at the tabernacle. And so Eli became his surrogate father at the tabernacle. That's Shiloh. You with us? Now, during the time of Samuel, after Samuel grew up and became a prophet himself, as well as a priest, <clears throat> they were fighting Philistines. Philistines were the big enemies of those days. And the Philistines came out in the field to fight. And the people of Israel went out to fight against the Philistines. And they lost the battle. So they went back home. They said, you know what we need? We need a religious symbol. We need a St. Christopher medal or uh, something um, if we're going to win this battle. So they took the Ark of the Covenant. Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, carried the Ark on their shoulders. It had two staves in it. And they go into battle with this thing. And when it came in, the people were so encouraged and they roared. They said, God is in our midst. We're bound to win now. And the Philistines even said, wow, they brought the gods into the camp. We're in trouble. We better fight harder. So they fought harder, and they won. And the Israelites were defeated again. Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but archaeology does. The Philistines went so far as to go to the city of Shiloh and tear down the tabernacle and destroy the city. About 1100 B.C. So Jeremiah says, look, guys, if you think this religious symbol will prevent you from getting into trouble, I want you to go up to Shiloh. It's only about 40 miles up the road. Go up to Shiloh. I want you to see what God did to that place when they rebelled against me. And they thought by taking the Ark of the Covenant into the battle that I would be obligated to protect them. But I wasn't obligated to protect them. I let the Philistines defeat them, and the ark was actually captured and taken to the Philistine cities. If I did that to Shiloh, I can do it to Jerusalem. And after all of this history, the disciples are still saying, Lord, could anything possibly destroy this temple? And Jesus said, you better believe it. I will destroy this temple. Because people have used it as a cover for evil instead of really worshiping me and knowing me and walking with me. And so he says in verse 12, Go to my place which was in Shiloh where I set my name at the first. See what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, I spoke to you 
says the Lord, rising up early and speaking, which is a way of saying, I really did this. I kept intensely speaking to you, but you did not hear. And I called, but you will not answer. And therefore, I will do to this house, which is called by my name, in which you trust. And to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, I will do to them as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim, because the northern kingdom had been carried away captive. Ah, no wonder they said, this guy's got to die. We can't have someone attacking our most basic institutions and get away with it. We've got to kill him. But the princes protected him. And so we come to a conclusion, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. To Jeremiah the prophet, he says, I don't want anybody interceding for this people. The die is cast. It's going to happen. Now, we'll discuss that week after next, God willing, when we come to chapters 18 and 19. Because there was a time during which Israel, Judah, could have repented and could have stayed in the land. But that time, at some point, passed. And here it is passed. He's saying to them, because of the hardness of your heart, because you're determined to kill me, the messenger, because you're rejecting all that God is saying, and because you think this temple is going to protect you, therefore, you're done for. Your judgment is coming. So don't bother praying for them. Then he says to Jeremiah, and this is an aside now. It's not part of the sermon. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Take a look around, Jeremiah. Do you see what these people are doing? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle fire. And the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Whom are they worshiping? Tell me. It's right here in the text. Who is it? The queen of heaven. Do you ever hear that expression? I was reading Jeremiah in a Hebrew class at Catholic University one time, and I was the only non-priest in the class. And these guys had never seen this passage before. I don't think they'd read their Bibles that much. And so we're reading along, and they come to this queen of heaven, and they looked at the prophet, and they said, wow, because the queen of heaven is today the designation for the Virgin Mary. And the prophet said, yep, that's it. Next verse. <laughs> the queen of heaven in Babylonian days and Assyrian days was the goddess Ishtar. We've talked about fertility cult and all of that before. <clears throat> this is part of that. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, they all had this virgin whom they worshipped. And the queen of heaven was the one that the Judean people, particularly the women, it probably had to do with fertility and making sure they had a baby and could get pregnant and so on. And so they baked cakes and offered them to this goddess for their, for, so that they could get the blessing of God in their lives and have what they wanted. 
And God says, this provokes me to anger. They should be coming to me. I stopped at an airport one time in Kansas City, I think it was, and they were supposed to pick me up at the airport. Somebody was. And I waited and waited, and finally some young lady drove up in a car. And uh, I got in, and she said, I'm sorry I'm late. I was listening to the radio because I was trying to find out from the horoscope what day I should get married on. So as we went, we started talking, and I started talking to her about the Bible, and she said, oh, I don't believe that stuff. (laughs) Incredible how people can reject God and accept everything else. And that's what these people were doing. And yet, if you would have said to them, are you a good Baptist? Oh, yes, indeed. I give my tithe. I go to church twice a year. Uh, I'm I'm really a, a good Baptist, you see. He says, verse 19, Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. My judgment is going to come. I want to show you two religious symbols. This is the god Baal. Uh, You can see that he's standing with his arm raised up, probably holding a lightning rod or something like that in his hand. We don't know what. Um, Because Baal was the storm god. He brought rain. And obviously, if you lived in California today, you'd be calling on Baal for some help because it's the driest state's been since they've been keeping records. So, these nature religions, which is what these are, uh, nature religion says, I live close to the ground, this is where I live, this is where I raise my crops, this is where I do all these other things, and so on. This is where most people lived. And since most people were half pagan anyway, particularly as you went north, they were worshiping all of these deities. And Baal, the word Baal means Lord or Master. It's a perfectly good Hebrew word. And so you could call Yahweh, the God of Israel, you could call him Baal, the Lord. Matter of fact, as I shared with the class the other morning, uh, we sing Beulah Land. You ever sing, oh, Beulah Land? And you ever wonder, what does Beulah Land mean? (laughs) Well, it comes from Isaiah. And the word Beulah means to be married because it's a form of the word Baal. And so when you get married, if you're the woman... The man becomes your boss. I know that doesn't fit into this modern uh, conversation, but it did then. The, the, the husband was the head of the home, completely, the boss. He was the Baal. And Beulah is the passive participle. It means the married land, meaning the land of Israel married to Jehovah, the God of Israel. So when we sing, oh, Beulah land, it now means, it didn't mean it in Isaiah, but it now means heaven. We're going to heaven someday. It's the land married to God, you see. So Baal was a perfectly good word. And if I'm living next to a Canaanite neighbor and he's got rain on his crops and my crops are drying up, you see my temptation? And he's going to say to me, hey, Joe, I see your crops aren't doing too well. Yeah, that's true. Well, have you prayed about it? Yeah, I prayed to Yahweh. Well, listen, you ought to pray to Baal. Baal... After all, Yahweh's Baal too, right? He sees the Lord Yahweh. Pray to Baal, and he'll bring some rain. 
And so the people were very easily drawn into this crossover religion where they were worshiping the wrong kind of stuff. Happens to us today. Uh, there's a lot of religion out there, folks. Boy, I watch TV, uh, and I see all of this stuff that goes out in the name of Christ. It's uh, really astounding and what they're telling people. Uh, and this idea of prosperity, which is so big in Africa, where you're going without food, and you don't have enough money to live on, and along comes a preacher from Germany and says, if you'll trust God, he'll give you all your stuff. But give me your money first. And one African preacher who's now learned to do the same thing said to a lady who had AIDS, if you'll give me your car, God will heal you of your AIDS. So he got her car, and she died of AIDS. There's a lot of crossover into pagan religion, even among so-called Christians. So be careful. I know I'm raising a lot of questions, but this is important. Now, the next slide I'm going to show you, um, I hope you won't be embarrassed by it, and it won't, but it's a, it's a figurine of a female goddess uh, because of the issue of fertility and having children, your cows having calves, your sheep having lambs, and the crops growing in the ground. All of this was terribly important for this purpose. And so it's usually an emphasis on the breast, you can see, because they sustain and provide uh, nourishment and strength. And so particularly the ladies worshipped this kind of a deity uh, because they wanted to make sure they had babies. They wanted to make sure that their babies lived. They wanted to make sure that the crops grew. And so this fertility cult was extremely important in the ancient world. And everybody was doing it except the Israelites. They're the only ones who were told, you cannot make an image after anything. You've got to worship me in spirit. They said, Lord, that's hard. All my neighbors have stuff that they can set on the mantle and pray to. And I can't do that. And that's very, very difficult. Oh, it's hard to be faithful to God and to worship him and him alone and no one else. And not to allow yourself to be enticed into a world of religion that sounds good but isn't good. We're being told today that a lot of people in this country are spiritual. Uh, by spiritual, uh, they mean they're interested in God, they're interested in religion, and you can turn that off if you would. Um, but they don't want to go to church. They don't want to go to church. But they, they're religious, they're spiritual. Now, going to church doesn't make you spiritual. It's a means of grace when you hear the word and you fellowship, it helps you to grow. But just the idea of attending church doesn't do anything for you. You can attend church and sit thinking about the football game and who's winning and losing and not hear a word Pastor Bill's saying and go home and forget the whole thing. Going to church by itself doesn't do anything. Being baptized by itself doesn't do anything. Tithing your money doesn't do anything. It's my personal faith in Jesus Christ. And we of all people should know that and should rejoice in it. So let me encourage you in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk by faith, not by sight, and to learn what it means to trust him completely for whatever happens. Thank you, Lord, for the word. Thank you that you've called us to be obedient. Help us to know.